Now in chapter 16, we deal with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest wasn't to go into the Holy of Holies at any time or just whenever he wanted. The Lord began to speak to Moses, and this was given after the death of the sons of Aaron. And now God is becoming more specific of the ministry of the priests and how that they are not to go into the Holy of Holies at any time, that they die not. For God said, I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. And so Aaron shall come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his flesh in water and put them on. Verses 1 and f 1 through 4. The Day of Atonement is a special day. Now, during the rest of the the rest of the year, the other priests would offer the sacrifices. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to do all the work. If you count the number of animals and all that that he had to kill and butcher and offer, it comes to some 30 animals that he had to deal with. Plus, he had to bathe five times. Now, on this particular day, he did not wear the beautiful garments of the high priest, the ephod and the blue miter and all that. But on this day, he wore just plain linen of the robes of the priesthood. And the first thing he had to do is offer an offering for his own sins. He had to take care of his own sins first. Then having offered the offerings for his own sins, then he could offer for the sins of the people. And of course, as you look at this, it is all looking forward to Jesus Christ. So there is just a beautiful symbolism all the way through, with the exception that there is no equivalent in Christ for the sin offering that the high priest offered for himself. For Jesus did not have to offer any sacrifice for himself, being sinless. There's no New Testament equivalent to that. But Christ has become our high priest, and he entered into the heavens of which the earthly tabernacle was only a model. Now, with the blood of goats, not with the blood of goats, but with his own blood. His was not an annual affair, for the high priest must, must each year offer this, but Jesus once and for all, and is forever sitting down at the right hand of the Father, until his enemies are made his footstool. But in the work of Aaron on the Day of Atonement, you you find tremendous symbolism here to Christ, our great high priest, going in and offering for us and for our atonement before God. Now, speaking of the Old Testament and the sacrifices, Paul the Apostle tells us in Colossians, in Colossians 2.17, that these were all a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. These things were all just shadows of Jesus Christ. He's the substance. So Christ standing there at the division of history cast a shadow in the Old Testament 
in the sacrifices and in the holy days. They were all just shadows of Jesus. None more important or powerful than this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, when the priest made atonement for the people. In the offerings, we see the work of Jesus Christ. Now, there were two goats that were brought, and the high, high priest Aaron would take the two goats and would cast lots on the two goats. Coat, on the two goats. One was for the Lord, and the other was a scapegoat. Verse 9. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall take the blood of the bullock, sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. And then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, to do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat, and shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and for their transgressions. Verses 5 through 12 and 14 through 16. So now on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest, doing all of his work alone, no help on this day, even as Jesus alone bore our sins and suffered in our place. Now the high priest would only come into the Holy of Holies one day a year. That was it. This was coming into the presence of God manifested there within the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat. On this day of atonement, he would enter the Holy of Holy three times. First of all, coming in and offering the sin offering for himself. Then with the blood of the bullock as a sin offering for the people. Then with the blood of the goat as a sin offering for the people, but coming in the Holy of Holies, offering these sin offerings that God might make a covering of the sins of the nation. Now, this is the law of God for sin. And as we get into the subsequent chapters, God deals with the importance of the blood in chapter 17. He forbids any eating of blood. And in verse 11, he said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes the atonement for the soul. The covering. It's the blood that makes the covering. Now I point that out because what a great disparity we have today among the Jews. Though they still observe Yom Kippur as the holiest day of the year, 
Yet I have questions for the Jew as to how they hope to have forgiveness of their sins. And the standard pat answer that the Jew will give as far as the basis for the forgiveness of their sin is that Yom Kippur is now the day of reflection in which you think over your past year. You think of all the evil things that you have done, <clears throat> and you think of all the good things that you have done. And your hope and purpose is that your good outweighs your evil. Now, if you have some crooked Jew that's been giving you a bad time, you might go to him the day before Yom Kippur, because quite often this time of year, they're really striving hard to make up for all the mismanagement during the year. So on the next day, when they're reflecting, they're going to come out and say, and they're going to come out okay on these balances. And yet the fallacy of it all, because God has established the basis for relationship with himself. The way that God has established the basis for a relationship is through blood sacrifices, for it is through the blood that atonement is made. God also declared in the law, Hebrews 9.22, for without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Sin is that which has always separated man from God. Under the law, there is not one word about balancing your good works against your evil. God made a covenant with these people, the Jew, a covenant whereby they might relate to him, a covenant where they might come to him. But that covenant whereby they might come to him was actually a covenant that involved the shedding of the blood of an animal, for it is through the blood that atonement is made. Now, one thing the law shows is not how approachable God is, but how unapproachable God is by the normal man. Under the law, there is no easy approach to God. There was only one man that could really approach God, and that was the high priest. And that was only once a year. And that was only after many sacrifices and washings. So their own law shows them that God is unapproachable by them. Now, when a Jew is challenged on this issue, he really has no answer, but only gives you some of the lame things that the rabbis have taught them, which have no scriptural basis. The Old Testament doesn't really present us a God that can be approached by anyone at any time. In fact, the 16th chapter begins, and the Lord spoke unto, unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron, your brother, that he comes not at all times into the holy place within the veil. You're not to come here just any time. You're only to come here once a year, and then only as you fall all of the ceremony that God is laying out. Now, if God was so unapproachable, then what makes the Jew think that God is any more approachable today? If he could only be approached through blood sacrifices, how do they possibly think that they can approach him with their own works now, which God's word in their own testament declares is 
as filthy rags in the sight of God. In the Old Testament, any endeavor to approach God by any other method than the prescribed method by God was considered by God an abomination. So they are not true to their own scriptures. Having forsaken the way of God, they have now thought to establish their own righteousness by their works apart from the law of God. And as Paul said, those to whom the law was given never did attain to the righteousness that is in the law. Because having departed from the law of God, they are seeking now by their own works to be righteous before God. And Paul in Romans shows the fallacy of their whole approach to God today. Now, we have an approach to God, something that Israel no longer has. They don't have any offering for their sin. They don't have any temple. They don't have a high priest. But we have approach to God today through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has entered into heaven for us, not into the earthly tabernacle made with hands, but into the very presence of our God, the heavenly of which the earthly temple, temple was only a model. And there Jesus has entered in, and by his entering in was the sacrifice for us. He then flung the, wide, the door wide open and said, okay, all of you kids, Come on in, all the children who by faith believe and trust in Jesus Christ now have a free access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of his new covenant that he has established with man. In Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy in our time of need. What a beautiful thing we have through Jesus Christ. So we are not coming to God apart from a blood sacrifice, for it is the blood that makes the atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That is why Jesus shed his blood, and that is why God put such a high respect for blood in the minds of these people emphasizing over and over the respect that they should have for the blood, even the blood of animals. It is to teach them the high respect so that when God's blood was shed for our sins, it should be something that is held in the most high respect and reverence. In Hebrews, we are told that he who despised Moses' law was stoned in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose you, he could be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and who has counted the blood of his covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. The reverence that God would have us to have in respect, God would have us have for the blood, even the blood of the animal. How much more respect for the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I shudder when people speak disparagingly concerning the blood of Jesus Christ. I shudder when people say, oh, Christianity is just a bloody religion. I shudder when men like Voltaire say, the blood of Christ, the blood of pigs, there's no difference. I shudder at such blasphemy. God wants you to have the very highest respect for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed that your sins might be put away. But the glorious thing about Jesus Christ and about his sacrifice for our sins, it was only necessary once and it covered for all. We don't have to bring sin offerings. His sacrifice was sufficient for every one of us and has provided the basis where God can forgive you of your sins. But let me tell you this. In the scripture, there is no other basis whereby God can forgive you of your sins. There's no way that as a sinner that you can have fellowship with God until the sin issue is dealt with. Something has to be done about your sin. God is a holy God. There's no sin that can dwell in his presence. Thus, for you to become one with God, having fellowship with God, something must be done about your sin. So no man can really have fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are saved, thereby it's the power of God, whereby I've been cleansed of my sins, so that now I can come to the most holy God through Jesus Christ. So the 16th chapter is absolutely a fabulous chapter to study. As you as you see Aaron, the high priest, going in, sprinkling the blood before the mercy seat, making the atonement in the holy place for the uncleanness of Israel. That was with the blood of the bullock, and then going back in with the blood of the goat. The two goats, one for the Lord, sacrificed as the sin offering, but the other one, the scapegoat. And these speak of the twofold work of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only provides the forgiveness of your sins, but he also provides you power over sin to separate your sins from you. Now, the second goat, the scapegoat, after having slain the first goat upon whom the lot fell and offering it as a sacrifice, he took the second goat and he laid his hands upon the head of the second goat. And over the head of the second goat, he confessed all of the sins of the, na of the nation, transferring all of the sins onto the second goat. Then the second goat was led by a priest out of the camp, out into the wilderness, and it was let go to just run off into the wilderness. It was the scapegoat, and it spoke of the separation of us from sin. Now, as the years went on, there was a highly developed ritual that went with this as the temple was finally established in Jerusalem. There was a certain area where the scapegoat was generally released. These were men that would stand at vantage points all the way around the Judean wilderness. The priests would be going out and the people would all be waiting back in the great area of the temple mount. The priest, as he would lead this scapegoat into the wilderness, 
Finally, he'd come to the wilderness area where he'd turn it loose. And as it ran, and when it disappeared, he would give a signal to the fellow back on the mountain peak, who would give the signal to the next guy, and then to the next guy, and then to the next, and to the next. And it just, in a few moments, the signal would come from the Mount of Olives to those down in the Temple Mount that the scapegoat was gone. The sins were gone. And there would be this great rejoicing of the people, the singing of the Hallel songs, the praises unto God, and the news would come back that the goat carrying the sin was gone. And I think of that great rejoicing when we realize that our sins are gone, never to be remembered again. Christ, having borne them, carried them, and the victory and the power that he gives to us over sin. So this day of atonement, the most important day in the Jewish calendar, it's worth to study and compare with our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 34, this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, in chapter 17, God laid out that there was only to be one place for sacrifice, and that was the tabernacle. They weren't to just sacrifice anywhere but the tabernacle. And later, the temple, the temples were to be the only places where sacrifices were to be offered to the Lord. And that at any time you killed any of your animals, you really should bring them. You shouldn't just butcher your animals anywhere in the field. You should bring them to the temple and offer them as to unto the Lord, as a peace offering or a communion with God. So that you would offer it and then you would get a part of the meat back for yourself in order that as you ate, it was something that had been offered to God. He having part of it, the fat and all, was burned as a sweet savor unto the Lord. And so you get the meat to eat. And as you eat, the idea is, I'm communing with God. I'm eating with God. I'm having this fellowship with God, the peace offering. So anytime you were going to eat meat, anytime you were going to have a barbecue, you should bring it first to the priest, offer it to the Lord, let it be slain there. You weren't just to slay the animals anywhere, but let there be that constant reminder of the need that we have for fellowship with God. So offer to God and realize that I'm eating with God. I'm partaking with God. I'm a part of God and realize that relationship that you have to the Lord. And then in the latter portion of chapter 17, the sanctity of the blood, beginning with verse 10. They are not to eat any manner of blood, nor to allow any stranger of the land to eat any manner of blood. For God will set his face against that person and will cut him off from among the people for the life of the flesh is in the blood and i've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes the atonement for the soul therefore i said to the children of israel no soul of you shall eat blood 
neither shall any stranger that sojourns among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel or the strangers that hunt and catch any beast or fowl that it may be eaten, he shall pour the blood out and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood is for the life. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, you shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood. Leviticus 17:10-14. So, just this immense respect for life, and then, of course, the realization that the blood was that which brings the covering for sins. Now, in chapter 18, we find the term used over and over again, for I am the Lord your God. So God wants a holy people. He tells them how they are to walk with them, for I am the Lord your God, and actually laying out the importance of the fact that they are representing God to the world. Now, Paul the Apostle speaks about how the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the way the Jews were living. And God was stressing the importance, for I am Jehovah, your God. All through this chapter, you'll find that emphasis as God deals with them in the way that they should live and dealing with moral issues in chapter 18. Now, as God deals with these moral issues, he is dealing basically with incestuous relationships. And first of all, and forbidding any type of incestuous relationship. Now, I think personally that the movie industry has had the most corrupting influence upon the world than any other single source. I think the minds of men have been polluted more through the movie industry than anything else. And I think they have introduced more filth and corruption into the world than any other single source. And there seems to be within the movie industry a desire to show bizarre kinds of relationships. And first of all, adultery, seeking to make it an acceptable practice. Then having satiated people with adulterous relationships, that no longer gets a tingle. They start showing incestuous relationships, homosexual relationships, seeking to make them accepted practices, and then began to show bestiality, the relationship with animals. Horrible, filthy, polluting things. Now, the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So if you sow to the flesh, you're going to have the flesh reap corruption. You cannot look at those things without polluting your mind, without polluting yourself, because you are sowing into your mind these horrible things. If these are the things you are sowing into your mind and sowing into your flesh, then of your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And Paul tells us of the heathen world having forsaken God, in Romans 1.28, not wishing to retain God in their minds, God gave them over to minds that were reprobate. And then he begins to speak of the reprobate practices, homosexuality, and goes on and lists a whole 
horrible list of the reprobate practices of men who no longer wanted to have God in their conscience. Of course they didn't want to have God in their conscience. Of course they'd like to think that we evolved from animals. They must get God out of their conscience because they could never live with a conscience with all the horrible, filthy things that they have dreamed up in their minds and in their imaginations and are portrayed on film. Horrible. Now, as Paul lists for us in Romans chapter 1, these horrible things that men did, he says something very startling at the end of the chapter. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Romans 1, 29 through 31. Now, go down that list again and just think of the movie industry. What kind of things do they depict in the movies? Fornication, unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, murder, deceit, haters of God, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, without natural affection. Those are the things that are portrayed. They say, well, this is life and this is realism. This is how people live. We have a right to show it because this is, well, this is real. This is real life realism. If that is so, God help us. We're living in a horrible world, but the last verse is the clincher. If you go to the show to find pleasure in watching murders, in watching fornication, in watching these things, if you go to the show to find pleasure watching other people do them, you are guilty taking pleasure in those that do them. Romans 1.32 says, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do those things, but have pleasure in them that do them. So God is speaking now, the moral laws. His people are to be a pure people. His people are to be a representative people before the world. You're not to be as the world. Oh, everybody's doing it. It's, it's no excuse for the child of God. You're to be separate. You're to be different from everybody. He is the Lord, your God. Your life is to be separate and different. If it is not, then what do you really have? Surely, not a true relationship with God. So the first thing that God is forbidding here is any type of incestuous relationship. Things that are all of a sudden become a very popular subject in the Hollywood movies. And after showing a few of movies where fathers abusing their daughters and all, and they've made it almost a common thing. The young girls that are abused by their fathers today, the numbers are staggering. It's horrible and it's unthinkable. But that whole horrible door was opened by Hollywood. Oh yeah, I know that it existed earlier, but it's magnified through Hollywood.
Now, they're not to allow their children to pass through the fire, their seed to pass through the fires of Moog. Now, God said the Egyptians did these things. The Canaanites are doing these things. I know that they're doing it. For this reason, I'm driving the Canaanites out of the land. I'm destroying them. You're not to follow the practice of the Canaanites, the people in the land where you're going. Now, in verse 27, the prohibition of homosexual relationships. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Verse 27. Now, these, I know where I am. I'm just trying to frame the word for these characters who are trying to pass themselves off as ministers and so forth, who are advocating homosexual relationships. Now, Cal State Long Beach has a Gay for Christ club, and Governor Brown in California once appointed and avowed homosexuals to the Superior Court in Los Angeles. Now, in verse 23, bestiality is forbidden. Defile not yourselves, verse 24, in any of these things. For in all of these, the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. The land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomit out her inhabitants. Verses 24 and 25. In other words, the land itself is so sick of the corruption that is within it, ultimately, the land itself vomits them out. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder. Jesus, it was interesting, said when the Pharisees said, Lord, rebuke your disciples, when he was making a triumphal, triumphant entry. And he said, I'll tell you something. If these disciples were to all together hold their peace, these very rocks would cry out. I wonder how much of the land really, really knows. God said to Cain, the blood of your brother, the ground cries out to me where your brother's blood was spilled. Now God says the land vomited out the inhabitants of the people. So sick were their practices. You see, there is a point of moral decay that once the nation reaches that point, it can no longer exist. It's gone beyond the point of return, and the nation can no longer exist. It's going to crumble and fall. And let me tell you something. The United States is awfully close to that point. Now, God, in speaking of these things, said to the nation of Israel, If you will obey my commandments and do them, then I will make you great. But if you forsake them, then you're going to be cursed in the city cursed in the fields, and cursed everywhere you go, God said. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. God's cry against Israel and the reason why she had to fall was she had forsaken my laws, they have forsaken my commandments, and they've gone after their own ways. I'm sure that as God looks at the United States today, his cry is much the same. They have forsaken my ways. They have forsaken my laws. They have forsaken my commandments. The land is about to vomit out its inhabitants because of the things that we have allowed. 
sitting back and doing nothing. So the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the iniquity, and the land vomits out her inhabitants. Now, verse 28, that the land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall you keep my ordinance, that you commit not any one of these abominable customs, which were committed before you, and that you defile not yourselves therein. For I am Jehovah, your God. Verse 28 through 30. And that repetition again. For I am Jehovah, your God. Now, in chapter 19, God continues in this same vein. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall reverence every man his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Turn not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods, for I am the Lord your God. Now notice the repetition over and over. I am the Lord your God. You're not to have idols and molten gods and so forth. I am the Lord your God. And if you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, you shall offer it of your own will. Now again, man's free will in all of his service and worship to God. Eat what you can for two days. If you can't eat it all in two days, burn it. If you eat it in the third day, then it's no longer accepted. It becomes an abomination of which was offered in sacrifice of the peace offerings to God. When you reap your harvest, don't gather the corners of the fields and don't gather everything. Leave something there for the poor of the land. Verses 2 through 9. So the welfare program was a beautiful program in that they were to go through and pick the grapes that were ripe, but leave everything that wasn't ripe. But they couldn't go through and pick a second time. Whatever was left was for the poor of the land. They could come in once your harvesters had gone through. You were not to glean your own land. Let it be there for the poor. Don't even harvest the corners of your field. Leave that to the poor. Thus the poor could go out and gather in the fields any time the harvesters had gone through. It was there. It was available for them. So it wasn't just a doled out program. You didn't just go down and get food stamps, but you actually went out and gathered your own. So you were busy doing something rather than just sitting and watching TV and polluting your mind. Now the Lord gives on to give further instructions. Verse 10, you shall not glean the vineyard, neither gather every grape. Leave them for the poor and the stranger. You shall not steal. You're not to deal falsely. Don't lie. You shall not swear by God's name falsely. Neither shall you profane the name of your God, for I am Jehovah. You shall not defraud your neighbor, neither rob him. But the wages that is hired, 
and actually in those days you paid wages daily, you shall not keep them overnight. You shall not curse the deaf. Now, these are sort of the things that I found a little bit amusing. You're not to curse the deaf or trip the blind. Verses 10 through 14. Man, what a dirty dog cursing the deaf man or laying a stumbling block before a blind man. But you know, I'm amazed at how cruel people really are. I'm even amazed how cruel children are to a handicapped child. What is that about our nature? That children are so cruel to a handicapped child. Now, in the animal realm, quite often a handicapped animal will be killed by another animal. But unfortunately, sometimes men aren't far from that. Taking advantage of the disadvantaged. How often we see it done. Yet there's nothing more cruel in the world than taking advantage of a disadvantaged person. There's nothing more dangerous in all the world because God said he sticks up for the disadvantaged. God said he watches over the widow. Man, when you're doing it to one that God is watching over, you're in big trouble. But you see, man, apart from Jesus Christ, we're not far off from an animal. For an animal has body and consciousness, and man apart from Jesus Christ has body and consciousness. And therefore, he relates well to the animal kingdom. Therefore, he is cruel to the handicapped or the disadvantaged. But a man who has been born again by the Spirit of God and now has a spiritual birth, not just born of the flesh, but now born of the spirit. And with this spiritual birth now is related to God and related to Jesus Christ. You really can't do these types of things. If you find yourself doing these things persistently and continually, then I will tell you, you don't have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. For whosoever is born of God does not practice sin, for God's seed is in him now a new seed and a new life born again by the seed of god by the spirit of god and he cannot be living in sin and you say oh i don't know about that scott hey i'm not telling you my words that's god's word and you can read it for yourself in first john now in judgment they're not to respect the persons of poor or to honor the person of the mighty, but they shall be righteous in the judging of their neighbor. So you're not to go around bearing tales as a tale bearer, verses 15 and 16. Do you know what he did? Let me tell you, whisper and people believe you. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, verse 17. You see, what the Jews forgot was that the law was dealing with the spirit and the heart of man, and they started to just observe it from an outward thing. And Jesus, when he came and pointed out where they missed the law completely in interpreting it as a governing outward activities, when the law is spiritual and God is concerned with the attitude. And here the law says, you're not to hate your brother in your heart. They just took the law. Thou shalt not kill. You can hate him all you want, just don't kill him. It's only when you killed him that you violated the law. But Jesus brought out again, hey, if you hate your brother, 
you violated this law. You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus asked the lawyer, which is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Jesus answered the lawyer. He said, in this is all the law and the commandments. So this is the second greatest commandment. Jesus said, the second is likened to the first. The first is loving God, but the second, and Jesus is quoting then from this one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now, you're not to interbreed animals. You're not to sow your fields with mingled seeds, nor are you to have mingled materials in your garments, such as wool and linen mingled together. When they come into the land, they are to plant the trees, but for the first three years, they're not to eat the fruit of it. In the fourth year, the fruit belongs to God. In the fifth year, it becomes theirs, and thus they will become blessed and can reap the harvest after the fifth year. They're not to make any markings upon their bodies, so the forbidding of tattoos and so forth, the forbidding of haircuts that corner your head or making baldness, and this is, well, it's kind of the Hare Krishna's is a good example. You shall not eat anything with blood. Neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. So you're not to be following the horoscopes. You're not to be making any cutting in your flesh for the dead, nor marks upon you, for I am the Lord. Keep my Sabbaths. Verse 30. Reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek the wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord. You shall rise up before the hoary head. In other words, when an old man, when a gray-haired man comes in, you're supposed to stand up and honor the face of the old man and fear your God, for I am the Lord. So the respect for the elderly is taught. Also the respect for a stranger. Treat him as one that is born in your land. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin, which are measurements, shall you have. For I am the Lord your God, which you brought out, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 19 through 37. So fairness in their dealings with man. Now, in chapter 20, God begins to get a little heavier. In chapter 20, God goes on, goes over some of the things he dealt with in chapter 18. Only in chapter 20, telling that the violators of these should be put to death. I know a lot of these sob sisters out there are crying against capital punishment. But if we were to practice capital punishment, as the Bible says, we wouldn't have near the crime problem that we have today. Now, I don't know what's gone wrong with our judicial system, but we are far more interested in protecting the rights of the criminal than we are of the innocent victims. There's something awfully stupid about our whole system that releases the rapists 
and the murderers and all back and the kidnappers back on the street to repeat their crimes over and over again. Something stupid when you can't bring up the past pattern of a man's life for a present crime that he's committed. The man is showing himself to be a habitual child molester or a habitual rapist. Then he should be dealt with as a habitual child molester or habitual rapist. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll pull the switch if they need someone. And he can ask God to forgive him and God will forgive him and he'll go to heaven and he'll be a lot better off, but we'll be a lot better off too and a lot safer and our children will be a lot safer walking in the streets. And I wouldn't have to worry nearly so much in sending them off to the store or to the park. We are living in a crazy corrupt world that's gone wild. And it's because we've forsaken the law of God. If a father sacrificed his child to Moloch, he was to be put to death. If he is worshiping the god Moloch and in so doing offers his child as a living sacrifice to Molech, kill him, put him to death, stone him with stones, for I will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from among the people. And if you in any wise hide your eyes from him who has sacrificed his children to Molech, and you don't kill him, then God will set his face against you and against your family to cut you off for those that go a-whoring after Molech from among the people. And if a person seeks after those that have the familiar spirits and after wizards to go a-whoring after them, I will set my face against them. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes. I am the Lord, which has set you apart. Everyone that curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. A man that commits adultery with another man's wife, both of them shall be put to death. A man that lies with his father's wife, those of the incestuous relationships were to be put to death. Verse 13 says homosexuals were to be put to death. Bestiality, a person, who, a person that was doing this, was to be put to death, both for men and for women. Verses 2 through 15. So God ordered stringent dealing with sin. And it gives you an idea of, of what God's idea of sin is. Now, you think that God is very soft and easy. Not so. God ordered them to deal severely in order that they might remain clean, in order that they might be pure, in order that they might not be polluted. As long as they remained obedient to the law of God, God blessed them. And when they started to mollify and to ease off on these things, then the land ultimately spewed them out, even as God had said. Verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them, that the land wherein I bring you to dwell shall not spew you out. Now in their failure, the land ultimately did spew them out. You shall not walk in the manner of the nations it's which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things. Therefore, I abhorred them. Verses 22 and 23. 
And that's why God ordered them eradicated. So God dealt very severely with these violators. But I'll tell you, it kept the violators down to a minimum. It was safe to walk around the land. A woman could walk around the camp at night and never worry, never fear. It was a holy place. Now, heaven's going to be a holy place. The kingdom age is going to be a holy place. Now, I'll tell you what, if you find it tough looking at this, then you're going to find it tough living in the kingdom age because you're going to be one of the enforcers of righteousness. You're going to have the rod of iron, which you're going to be going around and popping skulls like clay pots. <laughs> That's what it said. He's going to rule with a rod of iron as a potter blasts a vessel in shivers. Revelation 2, 27. So those that are disobedient to God, listen, he's going to keep it pure. He's going to keep it holy. And it's going to be a fabulous place to live. For a thousand years, it's going to be absolutely glorious as he rules with that rod of iron and righteousness covers the earth. It'll be a much better place to live than it is today. I'll tell you that. Okay, so next time we'll finish Leviticus. So fasten your seatbelts. But I want to tell you something. God is very gracious. God is immensely merciful. Or none of us would be around right now. If it were not for the Lord, let all Israel, all Israel now say, if it were not for the Lord, then we would be utterly destroyed. If it wasn't for the Lord's graciousness and his mercy and his tenderness and his loving kindness, none of us would have a chance. But thank God for the grace and truth that is ours through Jesus Christ. But should I sin freely so that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin any longer live therein? So one of the scriptures, and we passed over it, God said that, and you shall... And if you do these things, you shall live by them. Now, that's what the covenant was based upon, doing. The new covenant that God has established with us is based upon being for what I am in Jesus Christ. It's no longer what I am doing. It's on what God has done and my believing and trusting in that the works of Jesus Christ, my great high priest. Now, just a recommendation, when we finish Leviticus, you really ought to pop over to the New Testament and read Hebrews. You'll have a better understanding of Hebrews than you've ever had before if you'll just pop over there and read it now, just being so fresh out of Leviticus. And Hebrews will really talk to you in a very special way. So, as a special assignment for those that are looking for that A grade... May the Lord bless you and keep his hand upon your life. And may he help you to walk in all righteousness and holiness. For he is Jehovah, our God, and he is a holy God. He wants his people to be a holy people, that the name of the Lord would not be blasphemed by my actions, but that people in seeing my good works will glorify our Father who is in heaven. God bless you. May the face of the Lord shine upon you and his love burn in your heart all through the week.
in the glorious name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.